Oh, good morning, friends. Aren't we glad to be out of our houses? Come on. I was told I wouldn't have to deal with this mess down here in Dallas. That was promised to me in our negotiations to move here. I think my, I think my friends in Oklahoma City had a better time this past week than we did. So something's messed up about that. But um, I discovered that in a different way, you know, my commute to work during this can be just as treacherous, just a slight slope in the parking lot anywhere. I, I was worried people in the neighborhood were watching because it was, I felt like I was going to have a home alone moment or something, you know, just <laughs> out there and fall flat down. Uh, boy, it's nice to be out. Some of you were at home for several days this week. Some of you I have jobs or responsibilities where you have to be out, and because you're serving others or you're doing essential things, and we're grateful for you if you were out and about this week uh, in service to others, and we pray the Lord's blessings on your safety as you contend with that. It is, it's fun to be in this room and to, and to meet new people each week. We continue to meet people. Some of you have been here a while, and we're just new, so we're meeting you each week. Some of you are new here You've been away for some time, you've been worshiping at home, and you're back in person, and some of you continue to worship with us online, and we're grateful to you, but there's just a, there's a momentum and an energy in here, and in our Bible classes, and it's exciting, and um, it's just neat to be a part of that, and we're honored to be a part of this church family. We are just so much enjoying our time with you. You've been so kind and good to us, and continue to be encouraging to us, and Help me finding my voice as a, as a preacher and encouraging me and telling me what's resonating with you. That helps me a lot. And as I continue to grow and, and do this each week, your feedback and encouragement is immensely helpful to me. We're praying for our, uh, some of our elementary kids who are gone on the Collider retreat. Should be showing up any moment now this morning. And so for Stacy and for Andrew and McKenna and others, uh, staff and volunteers who have uh, taking our kids on that trip, we're thankful that they create opportunities for our, our kids to get away and uh, focus on their faith and meet others. So we're thankful uh, to them for that. We're going to keep talking about James today. We're in like our fifth lesson on this now. And we've talked about taming the tongue and we've talked about favoritism and we've talked about uh, how we contend with trials that happen in our lives and how we seek God in that. Today we're going to talk about how to be friends with God friends with God. And, you know, I don't know if you're like me, that, that language sometimes makes me squirm a little bit because God is so lofty. And so when we talk about God being our friend, that's like one step away from, you know, buddy. And I just, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just telling you a little bit about myself. But James wants to say we can be friends with God. And so I want to take him seriously when he says that and tells us how to do it. And he's going to have some, some strong words for us when it comes to friendship with God. But I think we know what it means to be friends. We understand that a friend is different from an acquaintance. A friend is different from somebody down the street. A friend is different from a coworker. There's something about friendship that implies more familiarity, more intimacy, more um, energy towards another person. Right? What, what does it mean to be a friend? Now, I'm reminded of what it means to be a friend because uh, this, uh, these past few days, my dear wife turned 40, and so she's got four friends up from Oklahoma City who are down from Oklahoma City celebrating a birthday weekend here. Friends drive three and a half hours to hang out with you for your 40th birthday, right? That's what they do. 
But James is going to tell us what it means to be a friend of God. And so I want to turn to the text today and read James chapter 4 and see what he says to us. James chapter 4, just the first three verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is tough stuff. Something I forgot to mention a minute ago. You know, James has, he's been telling us to tame our tongue. And then he just goes after people. In fact, as we read through this passage, watch for the Ten Commandments that James mentions. He mentions at least three, maybe four. Don't kill. He's got that in there. Adultery. He's going to call them adulterers. Covet. He's going to talk a lot about that. And there's this overarching allusion to having other gods before the true God. So watch your tongue. And now I'm going to tell you that you're probably breaking four of the big ten. James is serious about this. This is tough stuff. He's upset about it. So look at the formula that he says. He says you desire, but you don't have. So what do you do? You kill. Now you might think, well, James is speaking symbolically. Yes, possibly. But he might be literal about that. You covet, but you can't get. So you quarrel and fight. Really what he's telling us is this formula about envy and how it leads to conflict. And if you think about that for a minute, you know that's true. You know that's how we work. Scripture tells us that's how we work. Let's look at a few stories that we know pretty well um, and just kind of see how we think Scripture tells us about envy and what it does to lead to conflict. What about the Cain and Abel story? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And then what happens later? While they're in the field, Cain attacks his brother Abel and kills him. Envy, conflict, even violence. What about Joseph and his brothers? The book of Acts tells us that it's because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph that they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Envy, conflict. What about the Jewish leaders in Jesus? Mark tells us that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to Pilate. They might couch it in a lot of theological language and accuse him of blasphemy, but really, they were threatened. And it was out of their own self-interest that they handed him over. We know this is how envy works. One of the early church fathers, St. Basil, says that envy is distress caused by your neighbor's prosperity. Envy is the form of hatred that is the hardest to tame. Hmm. I wonder if you think that's true. Distress caused by your neighbor's prosperity. Why on earth would my neighbor's prosperity cause me distress? What, what's going on here? that I would look at someone else's good fortune and it would cause conflict. Well, James really tells us about that. He gives us the formula for how this works. Go back to verse 1. 
He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So this internal conflict leads to interpersonal conflict. It's that stuff that just sticks in your head about someone else. And you're sitting at home, did you see the house that they're building? I mean, they've got a lot, they got two lots now, and we only have one. And look at look at that. They don't need that house. Did you see the car that they went out and bought? I could do so much more with that kind of car. They don't even know how to drive that car. I can't believe she got that promotion. I deserve that so much more. I work way harder. Did you hear about what school they got into? They're probably going to fail in a year. I can't believe that. We, we, it had been so much better. I, I know how to do that more than they do. The problem is you, you have that voice that just sits there and stews, and it doesn't stay there, does it? What happens? It comes out somehow. It comes out in a comment you make at home or at a meeting because you're just so full of envy and resentment. It comes out in these passive-aggressive ways that when we keep telling ourselves that story of envy, it's going to come out in interpersonal conflict. You have been on all ends of that, haven't you? You have felt that kind of envy, and you can tell stories of how it's come out the wrong way. You might have been on the receiving end of someone's envy, and you thought, hey, I, this, this is just a good thing for me. Why, why are you so upset about this? And James wants to say, when that envy just gets working on us, and we see someone else's good fortune, see their success, and that resentment builds up, it cannot help but come out in interpersonal conflict. Maybe it's not killing, literally, like James says, but there's fights and quarrels. The worst is when the envy is in one area of my life, and I get all envious and filled with anxiety, and then I come and dump it on somebody else who has nothing to do with it. These poor people are the brunt of my envy somewhere else. That's what James says happens. And you have felt that happen, haven't you? Let's keep going and, and hear what he says about becoming friends of God. Verses 4 through 6. Carolyn read for us. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So he starts out and he says, you adulterous people. Where did that come from? James is following the tradition of the prophets that used marital unfaithfulness as a way to talk about unfaithfulness to God. You've been unfaithful to your covenant. But the interesting thing is, in Scripture, that charge is leveled almost always at people who would not believe themselves to be unfaithful to God. It's not outsiders. It's insiders. That's a warning, isn't it? That you would use that against people who would be very surprised to hear you level that charge at them. I want to say a, a word real quick about the word world, because it can get confusing to read that in Scripture. 
Because don't love the world. Don't be friends with the world. Hang on a second. Uh, John tells us in his gospel that God loved the world. But then he tells us in one of his letters, don't love the world. Which is it? Well, kind of like the word works, uh, you've got people using the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. The words mean different things. So sometimes the world just means all of creation, everything under God's reign. God loved all the world. That's a good thing. Sometimes when Scripture uses the word world, it means that part of creation that's opposed to God. So godly and worldly. Those contrasts. And that's what James is saying here. He tells us in another verse to keep ourselves unstained from the world. But this is a pretty stark choice. This is, when you read James, you probably hear echoes of Proverbs. That's because James is doing wisdom literature kind of stuff. And there's just two ways. You're friends with God or you're friends with the world. That's what he says. Pretty stark choice he gives us there. He quotes Proverbs to tell us that God opposes prideful people and shows favor to humble people. I want you to notice, what does James think is worldly? You know, when I grew up, the things that I was told were worldly had mainly to do with words that came out of my mouth, movies I might watch, or things I would do with my body. Fair enough. Worldly for James means being prideful. That is worldly. That is opposed to God. Being prideful instead of humble. That's what James says is worldly. That's what it means to be friends with the world. So let's, let's pay attention to the words that come out of our mouth and the things we put in when we watch shows and movies. Good. Let's don't limit our definition of worldly to that. Worldly means acting with pride and envy. Then he finishes this section, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Yikes. Now notice just all the imperatives there, all these commands, just rapid fire. Resist, draw near, wash your hands, purify, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter, humble yourselves. Just all these things in a row. And what I notice about this passage, maybe you notice it too, James really does think it's possible to resist the devil. None of this, well, the devil made me do it, I couldn't help myself. James is not going to put up with that, is he? By the way, just a side note. If you want to know how to resist the devil, go see how Jesus did it when he's tempted three times. Do you know what he does? He quotes scripture. And do you know where all three of the scriptures he quotes are from? You're studying it in your Sunday classes. It's Deuteronomy. You didn't think that book had much use, did you? It has a lot of use. Jesus used it. I'm going to be on a mission here to redeem some of this Old Testament. That's, that's one of my long-term goals here. We're going we're to love that stuff. But your time spent studying that on Sunday mornings is useful. That's what Jesus quoted to resist the devil. So side note, if you want to resist the devil, memorize scripture. We'll talk about that another time. There's a lot of language here that has to do with repentance and humility. So don't spend time picking apart all these verbs. 
Well, what would it mean to wash your hands, and how's that different from purifying your hearts? He's just saying the same thing a lot of different vivid ways. Humble yourselves. And he's got all these symbolic acts that you would do to get ready to be in the presence of God as a humble person. That's what he says. So let's talk about, for a moment, being a friend of God. He talks about that here. You've got you to pick your friends. James is writing to Christians. Do you think any of them believe themselves to be an enemy of God? They would be very surprised to learn that that's a possibility for them. It's those people out in the world. They're the enemies of God. We're God's friends. James is writing to believers. And he's warning them that their behavior could cause them to be an enemy and not a friend of God. That gets my attention. Does that get your attention? I mean, because we can fall into the trap. You know, hey, listen, I, I show up to church most times, and I'm generous with others, and I, I, I try to live a good life. How would I be in danger of being an enemy of God? And this week I came across this statement that tied all this together for me. Someone named David Cassidy wrote on Twitter, said, Most people don't openly hate God. Most people don't even wholly neglect God. They just very politely tell God to take a number and wait quietly until they're ready. Yep, I feel that. So I make all these plans, because James talks about our motives. I make all these plans, and then at some point, I'll get around to asking God to make sure those plans happen. So to to kind of tie it in with what we talked about earlier, man, they, they got this promotion, and I really want that too. So I'm going to work really hard to get that because I deserve that too. And at some point, I'll make sure God's on board with these plans I have. That's the danger. That's what puts our friendship with God in jeopardy. When he is an afterthought in our <laughs> envy-fueled plans. And that's convicting to me. What would we do then because of this? What would be a couple of next right steps? Thinking about being friends with God. First, we might examine our desires and our goals. We've all got this internal narrator in our head that's telling us what we deserve, telling us when things have been unfair, telling us when we've been wronged, telling us when someone has something that we should have too, that we deserve to have. We've all got a voice in our heads telling us stories. And it might do us well to stand back and ask if that voice is telling us the truth. Is is what this voice is telling me based on facts? Or have I strung together a narrative that's fueling a bunch of envy and causing me to act in prideful ways? So I was at lunch just a few weeks ago with... Phil, who was my preacher and a good friend of mine in Oklahoma City. And I was telling him about some fr- frustrations I was processing over the past couple of years. And you know, here's this one story. I could tell the story like this. And, but there's this other thing, and this is true too, and this is a much better way to think about things. And Phil looked at me and he said, Josh, it sounds like you're going to have to pick a story. Right? Sometimes that's what it means is picking the, the way of telling 
the world that causes us to act in most godly ways. So maybe someone around you really did get a promotion that they didn't deserve. Maybe someone got into a school you didn't think they were worthy of. Maybe they've acquired things you don't think they deserve. And you can tell yourself some stories about that. And you can tell yourself a story that fuels envy and causes conflict. Or you can tell yourself a story that brings peace and godliness. Pick your story. That's one thing. Just examine that in those stories that we tell ourselves. The second thing is, don't pray for outcomes. Pray for virtues. That's what James says. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. But when you do ask, you ask with bad motives. But earlier in the text, James says, if you ask for wisdom, God will give it. So sometimes I ask for an outcome. And what I really need to do is pray for a virtue. Don't give me this thing, this uh, advance. Make me an ethical person. Make me a humble person. Give me wisdom. And I'll let the outcomes work out however they need to. But too often we pray for God just to bless these outcomes we've already decided need to happen. Often those are fueled by envy. Really, we just need to ask God to form us into more godly people. And then let the chips fall where they may. One other quote from our uh, friend, St. Basil. He says, if you only seek personal glory, if you seek to outshine your neighbor, if you cannot bear to be in second place, you need to change the direction of your life and redirect your ambition to the acquisition of virtue. Free yourself entirely from the desire to get rich in any way you can and the desire to be known for your worldly accomplishments. For these are not in your power. Instead, be righteous and self-controlled and prudent and courageous and patient in your sufferings for the sake of piety. Virtue cannot be present in the soul unless the soul is purified of all the passions, especially envy. So I think James calls us to examine our desires and goals. And he calls us to pray for virtues and not outcomes. So may the Lord rid us of envy and all other things that draw our friendship to the world instead of God. Let's be standing.